Well, good morning, East Point. It's great to see you all this morning. Uh, we have come to week eight in our series, and we've been looking at the seven love letters from Jesus to the churches in the book of Revelation. And throughout that, we've been asking the question, if Jesus were to write us a letter, what would he say to us? And so today on week eight, we have the privilege to, uh, to really try to answer that question. And so what I've done is I've asked three of our elders to come up and just to share some meaningful insights from the letters that they've received, that they've heard as we've been praying and fasting and just seeking out God's will through it for East Point. And so I'm going to ask them just to come one at a time and to share. Just give them a big round of applause whenever they step up here because it's a lot of hard work uh, serving as an elder, especially working with me. So. As we're going through this series of uh, God's letter, one of the letters that really came close to my heart that touched me was the church of Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, 14 to uh, 22. Most specifically, verse 17, which the Bible tells us, Yes, you say I'm rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. As many of you have heard my story, I've shared many times my story growing up as a teenager in Central East Africa and going through a civil war and become a refugee twice. Throughout those difficult times, I knew Christ. I was saved. I was a Christian teenager. And one thing that I learned that God taught me throughout those times of difficultness was putting my trust in God and only God not relying on my own ability or anybody's ability because everything I tried to hold on and hope for didn't, didn't work at all. And that grew my faith to only rely on God and only God. And some of the questions I ask myself today is, do I seek God the same way when things are going well or not going well? Do I pray the same way? Do I read the Word of God and apply the Word of God? Do I seek the Lord same way when things are going well or not going well? God is asking East Point, as a church and individual, do you trust me and only me? Or do you rely on your own ability? God wants us completely and consistently rely only on Him, not our own ability. So let it mess you up if I put your papers out of order or anything? Okay. All right. All right. Good. I didn't want to mess you up. Uh, so I had uh, Thyatira. Thyatira. I can't say it. Yeah, it's not good. We'll just go past that. Uh, and, and, and what really spoke to me about, about that sp specific church was they had a, a lot of really things really going well for them. I, I remember, you know, as Dustin was teaching about it and I was reading, you know, they're you had like the, the, they had love, they had faith, they had service, they had perseverance. And I, and I, always, I thought, man, if you, if you had those four elements on top of it, the other thing was that they were also doing better, you know, at the end than, than they were at the beginning. So, so you would have about all of the elements there for, you know, for a successful church, you would think. Uh, but the one thing that really was kind of their hang up 
was that they had allowed some false teaching in, in their midst. You know, they had, they had allowed um, uh, this Jezebel spirit uh, to, to come in and teach false doctrines. And, and, and Jesus even says in their, you know, uh, prof prophecies of, of Satan. Uh, and so, so false prophecies and false teachings had kind of gotten part of it. Um, and so I think what, what that really was speaking to me about is just how, how incredible the Word of God is, you know, and how powerful the Word of God is, uh, and how we as a church, you know, no matter what, you know, we have to stay in alignment with the Word of God. And we have to be measuring at all times, you know, everything that we do, whether it's our, the teaching, whether it's the preaching, from everything from the, the kids' department to youth to, to, to the greeting at the front door has to be in alignment with the Word of God. Uh, and if we get outside of that, if we get in the weeds, you know, then, then we're in trouble. Um, and what I thought was interesting was is, is just the subtleties of the enemy. You know, he's not going to show up at, at our front door out here at East Point and say, well, you know what, my name is Satan, and, and here is a, here's another view. You know, that'd be great if he would do that because we could cast him out and we'd be done with it shortly. Uh, but he doesn't do that. He, he works in subtleties. You know, he works in uh, deception. He's, he is cunning. He, he's, he is the, the chief of liars. You know, that's what he does. Uh, and so we always have to be measuring everything that we do by the Word of God, and that it stands up by the Word of God. Because no, no matter how it's disguised, or no matter how the, what, what the attempts are to change it, it, the Word of God doesn't change. And so it's always consistent. And so that, that has to be our benchmark. Uh, and then the other part of that whole thing so, uh, uh, that really was, that spoke to me was the, 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 the person, the Jezebel spirit, Jesus says, had an opportunity to, to repent. You know, there, there, was a, uh, there, was, you know there was an opportunity offered to, for, for her to repent, but she refused it. Uh, and so that, that really spoke to me also that, that there, you know, in, in the church, when we do have things happening, whether it's false teachings or whether it's other things of that, of that nature, um, that, that, you know, uh, we have a responsibility in love, you know, to, to hold each other accountable. You know, we, we as elders, and I'm sure Dustin and the staff would say this, you know, we all have to hold each other accountable. That's everybody. That's all of us. If we're teaching something outside of the Word of God or, we're, or whatever it is, if there's something about our lives that aren't in alignment with the Word or aren't reflecting God's love to all the people around us, then, then we, then, and because of love, we have a responsibility to share that with each other in love, in tears, in brokenness. And then the flip side of that coin is we have a responsibility to receive it, right? I mean, sometimes we allow like, like offenses or we allow, you know, pride or things to get in the way and we don't allow the Holy Spirit to refine us, you know, as he's called us to do. Uh, or, or how he is trying to do it in our lives. And so those were the things that really stuck out to me in the challenges, I think, for East Point, uh, that we have to be a church of the word, uh, and then we've got to be a church that, that, that's, that's accountable, number one, to each other, but also more importantly to God. Thank you. Jesus told the church in Ephesus that they had left their first love, and it made me ask myself, well, do I really love God, and what does loving God even look like? 
I think anyone that's been married for several decades uh, at least has learned that love isn't an emotion. Emotions are just an expression of some true love that's inside of us. So what is it? Well, Jesus fortunately gives us a very clear definition of what love's in. He says in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, that doesn't bring a tear to my eye or an ache in my heart, okay? But what I think he's saying is if we love him, we'll obey at least some of the very important commandments that he's given us. I can think of three. One is to protect the ones we love. Two is to advance his kingdom. And three is to fight in the battle. And what I'm saying about that is, number one, uh, Jesus said to Apostle Paul, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And giving yourself up for someone or something is a real sacrificial kind of love. Jesus also said very clearly, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Well, that's a kingdom kind of a love. And really, it's one of the main reasons why we even exist here as a church. And then in 1 Corinthians 16, uh, 13, uh, God also spoke through the Apostle Paul. And he said, uh, be on the alert, stand firm in your faith, act like men, be strong. And I think what he's really saying there is reject apathy, accept responsibility, and lead courageously. And I think in the 21st century, especially in the American church, one of the biggest battles we fight is that of apathy. Do we really care? Do we care enough to sacrificially protect those we love, our family, our church, the name of Christ, as he's said several times in these letters? Um, or do we care about advancing God's kingdom? Or are we just satisfied to sit on the sidelines and watch other people fight the, the good battle? And I say this with authority because I fight the fight of apathy on a regular basis. So what did Jesus say? He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he goes on to say, if anyone loves me, he'll follow my word, just as Scott was just saying, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our dwelling with him. Now that's worth fighting for. So what is Jesus speaking to East Point? Last week, we asked you what you were hearing from God and gave you some sheets of paper to respond on, and we saw a lot of different answers, a variety of answers, but there was one thing that kept coming up time and time again that was something like this. Of course, coming off of a week of our spiritual fasting focus, uh, it's understandable that this would come up, but here's a generalization of what I heard over and over and over again is this. I realized how much time I really have when I'm not watching TV or on my phone which was followed by some type of an expression of a desire to grow deeper in our faith through the Word and through prayer. There was one that struck my attention, though, and I know I had mentioned this in the, uh, the sermon last weekend, but it was one that I planted there to just to see how it was received, and I saw this picture, um, if we have this picture here, maybe. Next slide. Nope, we don't have it. All right, well, there you go. So we don't have it. Uh, so, but somebody just simply wrote only God on a piece of paper. Um, and I don't know if it was somebody who had heard me sharing that or if somebody 
Uh, if that was uh, something that uh, somebody just had to lay it on their heart, kind of looked like my son's handwriting. So if it was him, I'm going to give him a dollar later on because that was a good thing. So yeah. <laughs> there you go. All right. But, but here's the scoop. Um, as we began praying about where God is leading us as a church, and we started looking at the challenges that we've faced, the opportunities that we have, this phrase, only God, kept coming up over and over and over again. Because the reality is, is that we're coming through a time of significant discord where a lot of our people experienced a lot of pain as a church. And while we're a church that is healing, we're also a church that's wounded. And we recognize that that is just a part of who we are and where we're at. We've all gone through times like that. And that's okay. God is faithful. But as a result of that conflict we experienced, and due to the COVID-19 crisis hitting at about the same time, we found ourselves in a significant budget shortfall where our giving decreased by 20% last year. And the same year, we took on a significant additional debt with addition to our facility. That puts us in a tight spot. But that's okay. God's not surprised. I don't know if you guys know that or not. God didn't fall off his throne in surprise and bewilderment about what to do. And while some might see this as Satan's perfect timing, hitting a church with spiritual warfare followed by COVID, I would suggest to you that it's not Satan's perfect timing, but it's that Satan's perfect timing has been thwarted because God has given us an only God kind of moment. Because in the midst of all this, we have an incredible core of people who are uniquely equipped to reach this area. If you're newer here, you probably don't know this, but Kristen and I, uh, we just moved out here to take this position in August. And as a result of being here this short period of time, one of the things that we saw immediately was how God was doing an amazing work here. How God had been working through uh, the midst of all the trials that this church has faced. And we recognize that this is a unique opportunity to move forward. Is that probably your handwriting? All right, thanks, buddies. There we go. There we go. You're, you get a dollar. I'm, I've only got a five, so I'll have to get you after service. All right. So, all right, all right. Thanks, buddy. Uh, <laughs> So, so somewhere in the midst of all this, um, we began to describe this moment over the course of this past month or so as an only God moment. This is a time where we need God to come through in a way that only He can do. And while we started mentioning this among the staff and the elders, we also heard it come up a few different places, including amongst a, a group of ladies who were studying the Word together, how this was just a phrase that kept coming up. And while some people would call this a rock bottom moment, I would differ. Because the reality is, is we don't have to hit rock bottom. All we have to recognize is we're at a point where we need to stand on the rock. The reality is, is wherever that's at for your life, we have different turning points. Could we figure out a way to get through this on our own? Well, maybe we could. But why would we want to? Could you figure out a way to get through your marriage trials on your own without God? Well, maybe, but then you'd probably just become more arrogant in the, land, in, in the long run, right? The reality is, is God doesn't want us just to have an only God moment. He wants us to live an only God kind of life. Well, we recognize the need for God every day throughout the course of our lives and where we are dependent upon Him whether times are good or whether times are bad. 
And sometimes it takes coming to one of these moments to realize that. And so I want to open up our, our scriptures today to 2 Chronicles, the 14th chapter, and talk to you about a king named Asa. I don't know if you've ever heard of King Asa or not, but he became the king of Judah about 27 to 30 years after everything kind of fell apart. King David, King Solomon, those were the good years. And then after King Solomon, King Solomon's son really messed it up. In fact, the kingdom was divided as a result. No. Yeah. No. <laughs> oh man, this is good. All right. Uh, so just after King Solomon ruled, it ended in about 930 BC here. The kingdom was split into Israel and into Judah. And as a result of this, what happened is King Asa came along. And for the first 10 years, he had peace but he was working very hard to clean the house up because he had to tore down all the idols from the high places and build up the fortified cities. And his grandma, in the midst of all this, his grandma was even, uh, his, his grandma was prone to idolatry and he even had to dispose her, basically. He had to kick out the granny. Can you imagine kicking granny out of the kingdom? Saying, you can't have a place here anymore? But after 10 years, eventually there's this great army that comes up from Egypt. Here's the account that we see in 2 Chronicles 14th chapter. Verse 8, it says, Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah, equipped with large shields and with spears, and 280,000 from Benjamin, armed with small shields and bows. All these were brave fighting men. If you're doing the math here, you got 580,000 warriors with shields and spears, right? Not a bad start in 900 B.C., but here's what it says. Zerah the Cushite, which is basically an Egyptian, marched out against them with an army of thousands upon thousands. What he's saying here is they were vastly outnumbered. The, the, the people from Judah were vastly outnumbered. And 300 chariots. Chariots were basically like a tank. Are you going to take somebody with a rifle or somebody with a tank? Which one are you going to put your money on? Exactly. Everybody knew which way this was going to go. And so it says that, uh, that they came out as far as Marishah, which we all know where that's at, right? It says, verse 10, Asa went out to meet him, and they took up battle positions in the valley of Zephath near Marishah. And so they were at this only God moment, where they looked up over, they were preparing for battle, and they looked back at their army, and they say that their army took up about a mile-wide swath, and they looked at the opposing army, and they saw that it took up about a three-mile swath. And they could do the math in their heads. And so what would Asa do? What would Asa do in this moment when he sees he's outnumbered, the other army has chariots, uh, and it's really difficult to run because they're just going to chase you because I don't know if you know this or not, but chariots are faster than runners. And so it says in verse 11 that Asa had his only God moment. It said, Asa called to the Lord his God and said, Lord, there is no one like you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this vast army. Lord, you are our God. Do not let mere mortals prevail against you. In his only God moment, 
Asa had this brilliant strategy where he called on only God. This isn't rocket science, is it? And it's one of the beautiful things about God is that he doesn't require us to be the most scholarly. He doesn't require us to be rocket rocket scientists to figure this out. What he requires of us and what he desires of us is that we call on him. That we depend on only God when we are in trouble. And that that would seep over into our everyday life so that we call on only God even when we're not in trouble. Isn't that great? And so as, 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 we, as we go through this, I was reminded of Greg Pruitt. Uh, he's written a short book called Extreme Prayer. Leads up an organization called Pioneer Bible Translators. Their mission is to translate the Word of God so that every Bible, so that every people group across the world has it. Now, we think, well, we've got several hundred translations in English. Some of them aren't very good, but we've got a bunch of them, right? Did you know that there are 2,000 people groups out there, 2,000 languages who don't have the Word of God at all in their language yet? He sees that as a problem, and so do I. And that's an only, that was an only God moment for him. And so his decision was that rather than just making prayer a part of the strategy, that for pioneer Bible translators, they would make prayer the strategy. And I think that this is where we are at as a church as well. In only God moments, prayer isn't part of the strategy. Prayer is the strategy. And as we go through the next couple of years, I'll be sharing some stories from Greg as far as, uh, as well as many others about how God has answered those prayers. When we are fully dependent upon God, when we're fully reliant upon Him, He's going to come through. And so being in an only God moment is a beautiful place to be at because we can trust that God is faithful. And we don't want God just to bail us out. But we want God to grow that dependency in our lives. Do you know that God doesn't want you to be independent of Him? That's a great thing, isn't it? I know that that's tough for us as Americans because we have such a high focus on individual freedoms and liberties, which, which is, doesn't go against what we're saying here at all. But, but where our uh, individualism, that rugged individualism is just like pounded into us from day one as Americans. And, and let me just give you something that, that should be very freeing. You don't have to figure it all out on your own. You can rely upon God. And you should rely upon God. And so should we. So what did God do when Asa called out in prayer? Did he say, well, it's about time you called on me? Did he wait around a little bit? Or do you think God got right to work? That's what it says in verse 12. And I love it because this is this huge buildup for this battle scene. And it's a lot like the book of Revelation. When we see these buildups for the battle scenes, and like there's all this tension, and then like all of a sudden it's like, then God came down and smote them, and they were gone. Like it's that quick. Like it's seriously, like it's almost anticlimactic because you're like, oh, like God's that big. It wasn't this battle went on for 40 days and for 40 nights, and at the end, the Judahites barely prevailed. Now, here's what it says. It says, the Lord struck down the Cushites before Asa and Judah. The Cushites fled, and Asa and his army pursued them as far as Gerar. 
Such a large number of Cushites fell, they could not recover. They were crushed before the Lord and His forces. Now I want you to take some attention here to how this was worded. And this is important because it starts off talking about the Lord struck down the forces. And then it says Asa and his armies were fighting the battle. And then at the end is this reminder, they were crushed before the Lord and his forces. Because at the end of the day, Asa and his army still took up their swords. They still fought like crazy, but they fought differently because they knew that God was fighting with them. And at the end of the day, what we want to be remembered is, is not, those were the good old days at East Point Christian Church when a bunch of people got together and worked together and did a really good job of getting that church in a great direction. That's not what we want to be remembered, is it? Well, what we want to be remembered is that God did an amazing work in us and through us. And while we, a lot of us, worked our tails off, ultimately the most important thing we did was wear holes in the knees of our jeans because we were so committed to prayer that we saw God do an amazing work through us. Because at the end of the day, I don't want people to say, man, when, 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 when I retire in 45, 50 years, whatever it is, you know, I got, when they haul me out of here in a casket, you know, I don't want people to say, man, you know, what's this church going to do? What I want people to say is, is, well, all that Dustin really did was point us to God. Like, and we've got other people that are raised up that are doing the same thing. So like, we're probably better off without them. Right? Because at the end of the day, that's what we want is to understand it's God who does His work in us and through us. None of us want the glory. None of us want the credit. All we want to do is for people to see Jesus through our work. And that's our hope and prayer, that this would be remembered as our only God moment that creates an only God culture. And as we've been praying through this, there's been three words that keep coming up over and over again. They originally came to me in the shower. And if you know anything about me, you'll find out that, you know, like there's, you know, take that steam shower because then I can write these things down on the wall because paper doesn't work real well in the shower, right? And these three words that came to us diverse, daring, and developing. First, only God can grow us in true diversity. We have a gift from God being in a very diverse neighborhood and being a very diverse church with very diverse leadership. We want to continue to grow that because there's nothing more beautiful in God's kingdom than bringing together people with different backgrounds, different colors of skin, from different countries, different places, under one God. Amen? And, and, and true diversity is not cheap, and it is not easy. I don't know if you've re realized this or not, but our country's kind of divided right now. And, and, and you know what? Like, as I was writing this sermon this week, um, one of the things I committed to do is, is, is to make it so that however the outcome of the election came, either way, that this message wouldn't change. Because at the end of the day, like countries rise and fall. Our country's a great one. We're going to pray like crazy for it. But our focus has got to be on God's kingdom first and foremost. Our most important commandment is to love God and love people and then to go out and make disciples. Like that's, that's it. Like that's got to be our focus. And at the heart of this is diversity. Only God can grow us in true diversity. And we're going to be fleshing more of these out in coming weeks. I need to get through them here and share them with you. I want to leave you a little hungry today for what that truly looks like. 
Second, only God can empower us to be more daring in our faith. We don't want to do things that are easy. But there's this synonym for daring that doesn't seem like a synonym at all, but in God's kingdom it is. The synonym for daring is dependence. We want to be so daring in our faith that the only way we can pull it off is to be fully dependent upon God. And so when we look at something, we don't want to ask the question, is this something that we can do? We want to ask the question, is this something only God can do? Because part of everything that we do is growing disciples, and part of growing disciples is nurturing acts of faith. I want my children to take such large steps of faith because they've been raised in in a a church that takes huge steps of faith. I want my children to take such large steps of faith that it makes me painfully uncomfortable. I I want to be like, "Are, are you sure? And they're like, yeah, Dad, this is what God's calling me to do. That's what we want to raise through East Point. People who are willing to take daring steps of faith, to take daring challenges. That doesn't mean that we overcommit ourselves. It means that we do a few things really well and we commit fully to them. Finally, only God can equip us to develop fully devoted followers of Christ. This word development is so important because at East Point I see so many potential leaders. You know, when David Roadcup was here, Um, And I don't know if many of you remember him. He spoke a few times, I know. But he said, man, Dustin, uh, he was giving me advice about coming here. And he said, he said, there are so many potential leaders in a congregation. If you focus on raising them up, it will be a delightful journey for you. And I saw this saying back in September that has really stuck with me. I don't know if you ever notice when you're here, but the airplanes just fly over and over all the time on their way to land, and I'm an airplane geek. Um, as Kristen will attest, yesterday I was like, oh yeah, look at that, that's an O2, you know, like that's flying over, I haven't seen one of those in a while. And she's like, what are you talking about? But here's the saying, if you build a mile of road, you can take people a mile. But if you build a mile of runway, you can take them to the world. And man, that's what we've got to ask ourselves. Are we just building roads here that end in a dead end, or are we building runways that launch people to their calling? And I think oftentimes in churches in America, we're not building roads or runways, but we're building racetracks. We just take that mile of road and we make it into a circle and we keep going round and round and round, and we value discipleship based on busyness. But what we want to do is we want to flip that around and say, no, we want to build runways. We want to build runways for people to take off and to soar and to be able to accomplish all that God has called them to do. And one of the things that we're going to do, in the next couple of weeks, you're going to hear from a couple of guys from E2 Elders. And this is a group of of leaders that are just tremendous people. Um, and, And we are going to partner with them to help us figure out our direction, our strategic plan, and how we need to do is some things behind the scenes, which might not excite you tremendously, but with bylaws and the way that we function internally, so that we can be as healthy as possible as a church. You'll hear more about that in coming weeks. Two questions for you. First, what can only God do in our church? What can only God do that nobody else can do? What can only God do that can bring us together, that can take us further, that can help us reach people that we thought were unreachable? 
And secondly, what can only God do in your life and in the life of your family? What do you think is beyond God's reach? Who is it that you've written off in your family or think that maybe it's just impossible? Who is it in your neighborhood that you think, man, only God could reach them? If you start thinking in that way, then you've started in the right place. Because that's the truth. Only God can reach them. Only God can heal your family. Only God can blow the roof off this church in an amazing way. And I think he's getting started. Father, we, um, we commit ourselves to you. Uh, we pray that you would stir within us this desire to be an only God kind of church. We thank you for this vision, this passion that you've placed upon our hearts as leaders. And Lord, pray that you would just stir within us a new commitment to depending upon you and seeing you come through. Jesus, we know that you have, you will be gathering people around your throne from every tribe and tongue and race and nation. And we pray that our body, East Point Christian Church, would be a beautiful reflection of the heavenly reality here on the east side of Columbus. Lord, work within our youth and our children to raise up the next generation of Christian pioneers, people who take the gospel further than we ever imagined, people who take steps of faith that are so giant, even David would be amazed. Grow us. May we rely only on you. And may it not just be for a moment, but may it be for the life of this church. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.